Take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, as we continue with this amazing, amazing chapter. There's a story that um, it has been repeated for years in homes all across the world for years. As the lightning flashes and the thunder crashes outside the window, uh, terror fills the child's heart. And in fear, they climb out of their bed and they run down the hall to their parents' room and they crawl into bed with their parents. And very quickly, they feel the protective arms of their parents encircling them in a protective hug. And while the storm continues to rage outside, something about those arms around them comforts them and tells them it's going to be All right. Last week, we discussed the reality that salvation comes with some amazing results. And we saw that that the result is is we uh, are with God. We saw the result is we're at peace with God. We saw that we uh, become one with God in, in a relationship with him. But we saw that we can rejoice in suffering because of our salvation. And perhaps as we walked through that last week and you looked at your own life and you thought about the suffering that you are facing every single day, you thought, you know, that is that's really nice in theory. But I live in the real world. And you wondered how this could even be possible. Your life is filled with intense suffering that does not seem to let go. Theoretically, rejoicing and suffering might be possible. But realistically, it does not. So the question is, how can you rest and rejoice in suffering? Now, we created a false end to the text last week. Really, the section goes all the way from verse 1 through the end of the chapter. And we stopped in verse 5. But verse 6 provides a really important argument For why you can not just survive suffering, not just rejoice about suffering, but actually rejoice in your suffering. And we see that in the next few verses, verses 6 through 11. Let's read them together, beginning in verse number 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Notice, verse 6 begins with the word for or because. And what he's saying is, he's building on the statement we finished last week. 
we can rejoice in suffering because the Holy Spirit has poured out God's love in our hearts. And you can be confident in that love. You can rest in the love that the Holy Spirit has poured into your heart. God's love that he demonstrates to you for three really important reasons that Paul lays out here. The first reason is found in verses six through eight. You in the middle of your suffering can rest in God's love because Christ died for us as sinners. We can rest in God's love because Christ died for us as sinners. He says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, while we were still weak, it's a word meaning helpless, and, and it's used, Paul uses it in related words in a, in a sense to characterize our weakness in uh, opposite, in contrast to the power of God. It shows our, our total incapacity for good. And Paul's stressing to us that God's love came to us while we were utterly helpless. While we were weak at the right appropriate time, Christ died for the ungodly, the irreverent ones. And, and there's a really important principle that Paul is presenting here that I don't want you to miss. He says, while you were weak, while you were ungodly, irreverent enemies of God, Christ died for you. Here's the principle. God did not wait for you to start helping yourself before he helped you. Christ did not wait or demand that you clean yourself up before you could come to him. He doesn't expect us to clean ourselves up our act to be accepted by him. This is the false message throughout the world today. Roman Catholicism tells you, you have to do the various sacraments in order for God to accept you. But Paul says that's not true. While you were weak, when you could do nothing for yourself, that's when God sent his son to die for you. In cultural Christianity today, we hold to this principle that if we go to church, if we do all the God stuff that we can do, then somehow we will have cleaned ourselves up enough that when we die, surely God will accept us because we did God stuff. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says he didn't wait for you to help yourself. He died for you while you were helpless. Legalism. The idea of sanctification happening by, by doing these certain things, following this checklist, has this idea that for God to accept you in the church, for you to be acceptable to God, you've got to fulfill that little punch card of God things you have to do. But God says, while you were helpless, that's when I want you to come. This point is defended by a fascinating argument. Verse 7, he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. He says, for a righteous person, scarcely will one die. Now, that word, I think, was chosen very intentionally. It refers to someone who is just and upright in his dealings. But, but the Jews loved to use that term for themselves. 
They love to refer to themselves as God's people, as the righteous ones. And Paul is saying, even for the people you think are the best, people don't usually die for them. Some might be willing to die for someone who's seen as righteous, but to whom they, and to whom they have really no attachment outside of that. And when we see someone sacrifice their life to protect someone else, we view that as heroic. Why? Because it's not natural. It's not normal. And then he puts in here, maybe even if they are good, someone would dare to die for them. This idea is people that you have a close attachment to, perhaps even that familial attachment to the person. While, while the righteous person, one man says, would be one who is just and upright in his dealings and would therefore have some claim on our respect, the good person would be one for whom we have a strong personal attachment and for whom, therefore, we would be more willing to die. And, and maybe if the person has a close attachment, we would be a little more willing to die for them. But even then, when a parent protects their child and dies in that instance, we still see that as heroic because it's not natural. And so he lays this out that even for good people, even for close people, it's not a natural or normal thing for you to die for people whose act is cleaned up. But notice verse 8. But God, in contrast to that, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. God didn't wait for you to become a righteous person or a good person. While you were still a sinner, his mortal enemy, Christ died for you. Notice that the argument here is in the present tense. God shows presently his love for us. God is still demonstrating his love for us through Christ's death. Christ's death serves as a timeless proof of God's love. As we consider this thought of resting in God's love, we think about the fact that that in the middle of suffering, we're called to rejoice in that suffering and we're told we can do so because the Holy Spirit has shed and poured out God's love in our heart. How can we be confident? Because God died for you. That's how much he loves you. God loves you. God loves you with, with an incredible love. God loves you intimately. But most importantly, God loves you unconditionally. God loves a man said, God did not wait until we had performed well enough to merit his love before he acted in love on our behalf. Christ died for us while we were still alienated from him and cared nothing for his attention or affection. So you can rest in God's love because God's love for you is not dependent on your feelings for him. You might feel as though you have fallen out of God's love because you are struggling with something in your life. And so you feel like you can't come to God or you can't trust God in this because you're a mess. 
But God's love for you is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on your feelings. It's not dependent on your perfection. You don't have to clean yourself up in order to come to him. You can rest in God's love because Christ died for you while you were a sinner. This means that if you have surrendered your life to Christ as your Lord, all that happens in your life is a statement of divine love from God. Your pain, your suffering, your success, your blessings, all of these are statements of divine love from God. In the middle of your suffering and pain, you can rejoice in it. In the middle of your suffering and your pain, you can be confident that God invites you into his presence because God, Christ, died for you while you were a sinner. He doesn't wait for you to clean yourself up. He invites you to come messy. So rest in God's love because Christ died for you while you were a sinner. The second reason we can rest in God's love is found in verses 9 and 10. We can rest in God's love because Christ secures our future. This reason builds on the first. Look at verses 9 and 10. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He says, since therefore we have been justified, we will be saved from the wrath of God. It's the idea of being rescued and delivered from God's wrath. And as this text speaks of the wrath of God, it is referring to that Eternal wrath that awaits the unregenerate world. This world is all that they have. There's nothing for them after that. They have no future. Their future is only eternal wrath. But we have something to live for. Because we have a future in heaven. We have a future with Christ How can you, in the middle of your suffering, rest in God's love, confident that you have an eternal future and God has eternal purpose that is working towards this future? How can you be confident in that? Well, he tells us in verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It's as if. While you were his enemies, the word literally means while you hated God. You were reconciled to him through the death of his son. You were were brought into a relationship with him. That word reconcile means to, to exchange hostility for friendship. This is more than simply a ceasefire. This is to move from being an enemy to being a family member. God reconciles you to himself through Christ. What does it mean that God reconciles you? 
means you're now his family, and that will never change. Perhaps one of the greatest pictures of this we see in a parable of Christ. A parable you know well, the parable of the prodigal son. His son comes to his father. We're not told why. We're left to wonder and imagine. But for whatever reason, he is discontent with his life. And he comes to his father and says, Father, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait. In other words, what he's telling his dad is, I wish you were dead. Just die already. Really great thing to say. His father in grace and love gives his son his portion of the inheritance. And his son, as you can see from his character, goes to a faraway country and lives after his character and wastes it away with riotous and party and, and sexual living until he has nothing left. And he's forced to work on a farm, feeding the pigs the lowest possible job a Jewish boy could ever have. No food. He's left eating the food pigs eat. For those of you who've raised hogs, you know, you don't want any of that. And this is what he's left with. So finally, we're told by Jesus as he expounds the story, the son comes to his senses and realizes even the lowest slave in my father's house lives better than this. I'm going to go back home and I'm going to ask dad to forgive me and just make me a slave. I don't, he doesn't have to make me a son, just the lowest slave. And we see this glorious picture. As the son is coming home. Little does he know every day his father has been looking for him. And his dad sees him in the distance and runs to him and throws his arms around him and is reconciled to his son. His son says, make me your slave. And he says, you would never be my slave. You are my son. That's what God does with you. When you come, he doesn't just call a ceasefire. Okay, we're not at odds anymore, but okay. He wraps his protective arms around you and reconciles your relationship. He loves you intensely. And Paul's argument is this. If God has already done the most difficult thing, he has reconciled his enemy and made them his family. How much more can he be depended on to do the easier thing? Save you from the wrath to come. He already did the hard thing. So you can be confident you have an eternal future. You can rest in God's love because you have a reason to live. There is a kingdom that is coming that now is. One day Christ is coming back. The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise. If we're still here, we're going up. One day the heavens will part. He will establish his kingdom on earth and all will be made right. And you can rest in that. And what that means then is what you are facing now is preparing you for that. I've said this often. Often we refer to what comes after death as the afterlife. We're in life and that's the afterlife. And I would like to propose to you that we have it all wrong. This is the pre-life. That is real life. This 
is getting us ready for that. But what that means is your suffering, your pain, your struggle is preparing you for something far greater. It is an act of divine love in your life to prepare you for glory. Paul's going to tell us in Romans 8 that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's why you can rejoice in your suffering. That's why you can rest in God's love. Because you have an eternal future. We're told in Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's the mystery. Here's what gives joys to believers. Here's the secret. Glory's coming. Christ is coming back. And it will be great. And everything that's happening now is preparing me for that. That's the mystery that we reveal to the world. We're told in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach this message that Christ died for you to give you an eternal future. And so you can rest in God's love because it secures for you an eternal future. But that means if you believe that, that you need to live in light of that future. If this is the pre-life getting you ready for the real life, then you need to use this life to get ready for the real life. As in sports where you use practice to get ready for the game. So you need to use your life to get ready for eternity. But so many of us are living for this life now. We're not thinking about the future. We're not thinking about eternity. Our actions come as a response to this. That means your job is not about making enough money so you can pay the light bill. It's a byproduct. It's an important byproduct. But that's not the purpose. Your job is an act of worship to demonstrate how great God is and to declare his glory in the coming kingdom. It means you work differently. You're not just punching a time clock trying to get out of there. You're doing it to the best of your ability to show the greatness and the glory of God. You're not doing it simply to advance up the corporate ladder and make more money. You're doing it to demonstrate that God is gracious and good and glorious and should be served. It means... That your family and your children are viewed differently. Your children are not something that you hang on to. But you rejoice to see them used by God. If eternity really is what you're living for. Then it means that if your child comes and says, I think God is calling me to ministry. You don't say, what? No. I think God is calling me to go serve him in the jungles of Brazil. You don't say, but we'll never see you again. We're reminded of John Patton's biography we talked about last week you'll be eaten by cannibals yeah and you're going to be eaten by worms one day it all is good because eternity's coming you hold on to your children differently it means you're not just raising them to be good members of society you're not just looking for behavior change you're looking for heart change you're looking to shepherd them towards the kingdom of god it means that you look at your finances differently if you're just living for the here and now, you're trying to collect as much as you can and you're trying to get the best stuff that you can, the greatest toys and the biggest house and the nicest cars that you can possibly get because it's about now. But if you're living for eternity, 
You are investing your funds in the kingdom of God. You are looking to see how you can use what God has given to you as good stewards to serve him. It means that you don't just view your work in the church as you're giving. It means you view your finances as a gift from God to serve others with and to serve the church with. Churches should never struggle for finances, ever. But they do. And you know why churches struggle financially? Because too many people are focused on the here and now. But let me give you a principle. If you live for the kingdom, you can never outgive God. Because he tells us, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these other things will be added to you. But you have to rest in God's love. Because he's, he's given you an eternal future. It means your time is different. You recognize that time is something you can never get back. Once it's spent, it's gone. And it's limited. So you're going to spend it for the kingdom of God. Because you recognize that if you lay up treasures here on earth, they die, they go away, they break. But if you lay up treasures in heaven and you spend your time for the kingdom, it will return to you again. Are you making the most of your time? It means your church involvement is not simply a Sunday thing because you're living for eternity. So you're involved in the kingdom of God. It means that sports are not the ultimate. That's a hard thing for me to say. This week, my favorite team finally got a quarterback. I was really happy. But you know what? In the grand scheme of things, who cares? It doesn't matter at all. It means parents, you may have to make a choice for your kids between serving God and serving sports. When you tell your children, yeah, we're going to miss church because you've got a sports game, you're sending a message to them. You may not mean it, but you're sending a message to them. And what you're saying is this. The kingdom of God is less important. Do you live for the future? A reason that we struggle in suffering, a reason that we battle it and we fight it and we become depressed and despair in our suffering is we have lost sight of the fact that we have a future. You can rest in God's love for you because Christ has secured for you an eternal future that cannot even begin to be compared to this life. The final reason we can rest in God's love is found in verse 11. He tells us more than that. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The fact that Christ died for us. While we were his enemies. The fact that he has secured for us an eternal future in his kingdom is absolutely amazing. But it brings with it an even more amazing result. Each of these results builds on the previous. Christ died for you. It shows God's love. And because Christ died for you, he secured for you an incredible future which shows God's love. And because he's done those things, more than that... Literally, it says this, but not only that, when we come to recognize God's love, 
we cannot help but respond with rejoicing. Show me a believer that is frustrated and depressed with life, and I will show you a believer who has lost sight of God's love. Why? Because your view of God determines your view of life. But you can't have a right view of God if you don't actually know God. This is why Paul has been building to this crescendo. He reminded us in Romans 1 through 3 that we don't have it together. You are a mess. We're told we are totally depraved. We look at the culture around us and it's easy for us to point at the culture around us and say, what a mess. But then in chapter 2, he points at us and says, you too. Even the ones that think they're righteous are a mess. And it concludes in chapter 3 that there is no one righteous. There is no one good. There is no one who seeks after God. And so you have no right to God. But God loves you. And so in his divine providence, he sent his son to take on the form of his own creation. To live that perfect life we could never live. To be crucified on a cross. To take our sin on himself. He was crucified for our trespasses, our transgressions. And three days later, as we will celebrate in about a month, he was raised for our justification. He was raised from the dead to demonstrate his power over sin and death and hell and secure for us an eternal future. So that as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, you will put on incorruption. You have an eternal future. But this only comes if you surrender to Christ as your Lord. If you respond to him in faith. You have to call on him. And if you've not done that, then you have no hope. Everything I've said to you today does not apply to you at all. You ought to live in despair. But if you come to him in faith, you give him your life, you can rejoice in suffering because you can rest in God's love. We didn't have to clean ourselves up for God to love us. God loves us anyways. John Stott says this, To be sure, we are often profoundly perplexed by the tragedies and calamities of life. Indeed, God has been giving his teaching about, or Paul has been giving his teaching about God's love within the context of tribulation, which can be very painful. But then we remember that God has both proved his love for us in the death of his son and poured his love into us by the gift of his spirits. You don't have to be perplexed by your suffering because you don't have to clean yourself up to go to God. When you're dating, you put your best foot forward. When you were dating, you tried to make sure that they all only saw the good side of you. And then you got married. I think I just broke it. We might have to go to this one. But with God, he didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. He died for you while you were still his enemy. 
He wants you to come messy. In fact, He doesn't save you unless you come messy. That means that in every situation of life, God's love reaches out to you. And through this, He's given us a future. And we can be confident that because He died, we'll reign with Him in the end. So we need not fear the suffering of this life because it's working in us a far greater thing. It's preparing us for glory. And when we recognize this, we cannot help but rejoice. We cannot help but sing out in praise to God. When we see glimpses of heaven, we see, uh, we, we see pr- uh, praise for the glory. We sing praise for the glorious love of God. I think of the words of John Wesley. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of Thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. Hear him, ye deaf His praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. In Christ your head you then shall know, shall feel your sins forgiven. Anticipate your heaven below, and own that love is heaven. You can rest in God's love, because he intently Loves you. So what? Let me give you three things today to consider as you walk out. One. Come to Christ messy. And surrender your life to him. Quit trying to clean yourself up first. Come to him messy. Two. Remember and rest in his everlasting love for you. Those times of life when you are overwhelmed with struggle, when you are tempted to despair, remember and rest in His everlasting love for you. And three, live like Jesus' love for you matters by living in response to His love. Live like it actually matters to you by living in response to it. Live for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to rehearse together your glorious love. To be reminded of the way that it was demonstrated to us through the death of Christ. That you did not spare him, but freely gave him for us while we were your enemies. That beyond that, you have secured for us a family and a home and a future in the kingdom of God so that we can be confident that everything in this life is preparing us for that glorious kingdom. And Lord, we long for it to come. And so we ask, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
But in the meantime, help us to rest in your love so that we can rejoice even in suffering. Rejoice in the reconciliation we have with you because of Christ. Help us to live for you, not for this world, and to make you look as good as you really are. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.